Good to see everyone. Uh, thank you for worshiping with us. Uh, we're beginning a new sermon series. We just wrapped up our last one called Sing. And uh, some of our home group members just mentioned how awkward it was that we don't get to sing together uh, while we're, we thank you, Kevin and Carrie, just faithfully serving and singing. Uh, we do miss just hearing everyone singing together. Uh, hopefully that's a series that blessed you. And this coming series uh, is called The Big Reveal. Uh, we're going to go through the book, uh, the first portion of the book of Revelation. Uh, for many people, you kind of in either one extreme, right? For some, we're super scared of Revelation because there's all these symbols and people call, uh, scholars call the, this book the apocalyptic book. Basically, it means that it is a book about the end time and there are all these controversies. And some Christians just don't want to touch that because they don't want to step on people's toes. It is too hard to understand. And there is a, an avoidance of this book. And then there are some people who are uh, ecstatic to study this book because of all the imagery, the precise reason why scare people away, and that's what draw them in. It's like, whoa, end time, all these crazy pictures. And and I just want to give you the bad news first, is that we're not going to go through all those imagery necessarily. We're going to go through some of those, uh, but we're not going to go through, touch on the prophecy part. So don't email me, don't don't text me and say, Ben, like, how come we're not talking about Antichrist? We're not talking about pre-mill, pre-trip, and all these, we're not tripping over any tripping okay so we're just going to focus on the first uh the two chapters of the book of revelations chapter two and chapter three but let me explain why i want to go through those two books because in those uh, those two chapters because in those two chapters there were seven letters seven letters that were written by jesus to his church through the apostle john seven letters to seven churches who are in Asia, Asia Minor. And what we're going to do is basically we are going to go through and, and take a peek of uh, the church's mail. I know it's not good to steal mails and read mails from other people, but we're going to do that this time because it was written, it was published. And so we're going to go through every single one of those letters in this series in learning because in each one of these letters, Jesus has a word of commendation. Jesus has a word of rebuke. Jesus had a word of encouragement. And I think it is important for us to pay close attention to it. So I just want to read it for us. These are four, seven letters. You can read along with me. The first one is to Ephesus. The second one is for Smyrna. We have Pergamum. We have Thyatira. We have Sardis, the letter to the church of Sardis. We have the one letters for Philadelphia, not the one in uh, Pennsylvania, but in, in Asia Minor. And then lastly, we have Laodicea. And what we'll see is that every single one of these will, will serve us to us, almost bring, become a mirror for us of how we're doing in our walk with Jesus. Because that was the purpose for which Jesus sent these letters, wrote these letters through the Apostle John to go and communicate and assess each one of those churches. I thought it was really a good timing for us to do this right now because I realized as we're all sitting at home, the ease and the comfort of being able to stay at home, do things on our computer, and does not guarantee for us intention to grow. In fact, what happens is I realize ease and comfort a lot of times service the lack thereof intention to grow. So if we don't want to click on the link to worship, which I think most of you are doing, that's why you're watching, you could just sleep in a, a little bit more. No one would tell, can tell. If you don't want to show up for a small group, you don't have to. No one's going to force you. 
As opposed to before, you are dragged to church, maybe physically, maybe you, someone know that you did not get out of your house. You see, there are a lot of things that are service to us. When we're in times like these, it shows or reveals to us a whole lot about who we really are. And more importantly, what our relationship with God is like. So I pray for us throughout this series that we will pay close attention to the word of Jesus. To these seven churches. And so while these letters were given. And the immediate context was written to those seven churches. I believe these letters are also written for you and I. Written for our church here in First Chinese Baptist Church. St. Gabriel Valley. To the churches in this world. But before you go quickly pass it on to someone and say. Oh that's uh, church is for the church. It's for our church. But really in your, you know we all know what that means right. We just think like oh it's for the person next to me. I start thinking of somebody else needed to hear this message. I want you to pay co- close attention. Because I believe it is for you. But more importantly it's for me. Because we are the church. That is not just the institution, the, the 4013C uh, name of the church, but it is for us. We make up the church. And so the rebuke, the encouragement, the warning are all for you and I because we are the, we make up this church. And it's no surprise that in every single one of these letters, at the end of the letter, Jesus said these words. He said, he who has ear, let him hear. What the Spirit says to the churches. We see right then and there that there's importance of hearing these things. But not hearing it but actually paying close attention to it. It was noticed the plural. The churches, the seven churches ought to learn from one another. But beyond that we ought to learn from them. So it would be wise. It would be spiritually astute for us. To pay close attention to the letters that we'll be reading. And learn from their strength. And be rebuked perhaps by the lack thereof in our own lives. So today we'll begin with the first church. The church of Ephesus. The church of Ephesus. The first letter was written to the city of the church located in the city of Ephesus. Modern day Turkey. Back then in the region called Asia Asia Minor. And I wanted to give you this title to remember Ephesus. Ephesus is the church in the city. Ephesus is the church in the city. He, they are in the best. They are in the best location. Politically, Ephesus, city of Ephesus, was known to be the supreme metropolis of Asia Minor. It is where, like, it is kind of like D.C., Washington D.C. All the ultra-educated people, all the policymakers, people who are in that status would go there. In fact, they have the one of the greatest, biggest library, library of Celsius, in located in Ephesus, as you see in the picture. There was a happening place. It was a, a academic place. It was a place of knowledge. So politically, it was called supreme metropolis. But beyond that, commercially speaking, it was an important port. It located in the Asian Sea. And as many of us know, the port city tends to be where things are happening. Business was thriving. Import, exports. And if you look at the map, you notice that it was surround, uh, the, the major roads were surrounding, the, uh, connecting the seven cities. In fact, almost every major highway at the time is converging on Ephesus. Which, by the way, is no surprise why Jesus wrote the seven letters to these seven cities because they are some of the major cities on that major highway. So commercially speaking... Some people call it the Vanity Fair of the ancient world. Ephesus is like your Los Angeles, like here. It's like New York. 
In fact, it has a stadium, that, a theater that can seat as many people as we have here in Los Angeles, the Stable Center, 25,000 seats stadium, minus the AC. It was outdoor stadium. But it was just happening. And as we know, with those of us who live in Los Angeles, we know for every good thing that's going on in Los Angeles, there's also a dark side to our city. And it is not, it is, it is the same thing happens in Ephesus. So not only politically, commercially, but even spiritually. Ephesus was a city of vibrant religion. That unfortunately, it was not the right religion. It was the religion of, of Artemis, the Greek goddess, the, the, the Roman goddess, Diana. It was the fertility goddess that they were known for. In fact, the, the te- there was a temple built dedicated to Diana called the Temple of Artemis. It was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, just like the, the pyramid in Egypt, the Great Wall of China. It was, it was so, they were dedicated so much time in worshiping Diana. They built this magnificent temple. And it was at that city. That the church was founded. The church was founded by Paul. We look at the book of Acts. It was founded by Paul. It was pastored by Timothy. It was taught by Apollos. It was served by Priscilla and Aquila. So all the name names you got, you got are going through that city. It was called sometimes the mother church of Asia Minor. Because it was the hub where Paul used strategically planted the church. As a way of planting more churches in the region. So you see. Ephesus was an important, important city. And you may be wondering why I'm telling all these importance about Ephesus. The reason why I wanted to share with you about that is because Ephesus was not some small, dinky church out in a rural area. Ephesus would be the church that everyone wants to become like. Ephesus would be that big church that everyone wants to be like. Every pastor wanted a church like Ephesus. They would be on an outreach magazine. It was that type of church that Jesus was writing to through the Apostle Paul. They have a a rival legacy. They have vibrant ministry. And yet, as we read, we see there are good things going on, and there's one thing that Jesus was rebuking them. So if you you have the Bible with you, or the app, or the website, go ahead and open up to Revelation, the last book of the Bible. Revelation chapter 2, verse 1 to 7. Let me read that for us. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. We're talking about imagery. That's right off right there. Um, uh, Let me break it down a little bit here right off the bat. To the angel of the church. Some people believe maybe the actual angel of the church. Some people believe that uh, the word actual angel means messenger. The people who deliver the message. So we don't know for sure whether it is supernatural, like the angel that we think of, or just simply messenger like pastors and leaders. But regardless, Jesus has a word for the church of Ephesus. And it says the words of him who holds the seven stars. If you flip back just one chapter before, the seven stars represent the seven churches. The seven churches that was named here. God, uh, one, on one hand, we, hear, we see that Jesus is holding. Jesus is with those seven churches. And then secondly, it says, walks among the seven golden lampstands. The church was not only stars, but they are also called the lampstands. You know what lampstands are for? It's meant to shine. Lampstands are meant to shine in a place of darkness. And how appropriately it is, right? 
in today's world, and more, uh, all the more now we as the church of Jesus Christ, we ought to shine. And that's the intent, the mission of the church. Now, here's what, here comes Jesus' accommodation to, to, accommodation to the church of Ephesus. Let's continue to read. Verse 2, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this I, you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans which I also hate. He who has ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for this time we can be in your word. Spirit of the living God, teach us, illuminate our mind, open up our hearts, clear our ears, remove any barriers and rocks in our hearts of unbelief. Produce, reproduce work, multiply fruit in our hearts as we receive these words. Multiply 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. May you receive all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we read this passage, I think right off the bat we see two words, two dreaded words that we often don't like to hear. It's the word, I know. I know. Jesus here is giving a job interview, a job evaluation, a job review that those of us who work, most of us, we have an annual review where, where our boss would come and tell us what they know about our work. Or perhaps you're a student that your parents, your teachers say, I know what you have done. I know what you did. And sometimes those words can be words of despair. Because we know we haven't done our job. And here Jesus comes to this church and says, I know what you have done. The God who knows everything knows what you've done. He knows how your Bible study had gone. He knows what it was like in the morning when you woke up in the morning, open up your Bible app, and the next thing, five minutes later, you fall asleep. He knows when you're watching uh, online worship. He knows your prayer meeting. He knows lack thereof your prayer meeting. He knows what you're doing with your life. What are your live streaming? What are you saying? What are you texting? What are you thinking? Jesus said to the church of Ephesus, I know. And he's about to give them a job review. In evaluation, and like every good boss, they, he used this uh, a business method. Uh, I don't think I, I think Jesus originated with that, and uh, business world adopted that. But Jesus gave actually them uh, uh, um, what they're good at. Jesus commend them for doing well in certain areas. Then Jesus bring up something that they did not do, do so well. Then Jesus gave them a way to, to, to learn and grow beyond what they did not do well. And that's what Jesus is going to do every single one of these letters. So what did they do well? What did the church of Ephesus do well? Here's what it says in verse 2. There are three things he did well. they did well. He says, I know your works, verse 2, your toil and your patient endurance. This is the first thing we saw that they did well. They were hardworking. They work hard. The word toil is, is using every sweat and they, they're working to the point of exhaustion. 
That they're doing the right thing because we see in verse 2 that they're fighting against these evil things. They're not bearing, they're not withstanding evil, but they're fighting against evil in their city. They're fighting against those who pretend to tell the truth. So they're working and working and working. Day in, day out, they're dependable. So one of the ways that Jesus commended them was that they were people who work hard. But not only do they work hard, it says that they also persevere hard. Look at verse 2 again, that I know your works, your toil, and your patience, endurance. You go down to verse 3, I know you are enduring patiently, bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Not only do they work hard, serve hard, they're enduring. You may be wondering, what are they enduring about? Remember. The church of Ephesus was a, a, a city, uh, the city of Ephesus was a city filled with other religions, primarily the religion of worshiping Diana and Artemis. And in fact, Paul almost got killed presenting the truth, and people kick him out of town because now they're messing with the livelihood. You can preach Jesus, but don't tell people to stop buying my stuff. And Paul got kicked out of the city. You see, the people in Ephesus were enduring the same opposition, the same persecution that's going on. They're withstanding, holding their ground, even to being ostracized socially, being discriminated in their business, being uh, beat up violently. They're enduring all of that. So they work hard, they persevere hard, and not only that, they fight hard. They don't fight with their hands, but they fight against false teaching. They are fighting hard with sound doctrine. Look at verse 2 again. Going back, it says, they have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. They're not, they're not just listening to anybody come by and teach. They are listening whether they are of the real deal or not. In fact, you go down to verse, verse uh, 6. It says, yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitan, which I also hate. We don't know much about the Nicolaitan because uh, there's not much to be said in the scripture. In fact, only two out of times. Uh, both of which is are uh, are in, recorded in Revelation, but we know that Jesus said they hate these type of people because they t- seem to live out a life that is inconsistent with the gospel, inconsistent with who God is. So whatever that they're believing, they're living out is not true to form to what the Bible says to be true. And we see here the people of God, the people in Ephesus, the Christians in Ephesus are fighting against it, standing up against it, and they are fighting hard. So they work hard, they persevere hard, and they fight hard with sound doctrine. I think the phrase I would use to summarize them best is this phrase, faithful endurance. That the people in Ephesus, the church of Ephesus, are people who are faithfully enduring for God's sake. Kind of like, uh, they, they, they remind me, reminded me of uh, Iron Man. But not the Iron Man that you're thinking about. Most of you are probably thinking about Robert Downey Jr. on the movie, Iron Man, the comic Iron Man. I'm thinking about a, a different Iron Man, a, name by the name, a guy by the name Cal Ripken Jr., he got the name uh, to be an Iron Man because he was a baseball player who had played consecutively 2,131 games consecutively without taking a break. The reason why I brought this up is because my kids actually asked me about him. We saw this, uh, this interview of him recently, and I get to tell this story, and I thought how appropriate it is. That we have an Ironman who played 2,131 games, and just to put in context what that means. That means he played 17 straight years of baseball season. 17 seasons of baseball without taking one day off. 
while he and he was not some pitcher who pitches every three or four days. He was an everyday player. Playing in one of the tough, I believe, one of the toughest positions in second base or third base. He played for 17 seasons straight without skipping one game. Think about when's the last time you call to have a day off at work. 17 years. When I think of the church of Ephesus, I think of the church of Ephesus having a bunch of Cal Ripkins on their church. Not church staff, but like members. That these Cal Ripkins are waking up early in the morning, showing up to go to nursery and serve the crying babies. The Cal Ripkins of their church will go up and set up and take down and clean up. They will, they will cook extra food to serve those who have no food. That they will uh, faithfully show up every weekend without skipping a weekend. Whether in children ministry, youth ministry. They are the Cal Ripkins of the church because they continue to serve without whining, without complaining. They teach Sunday school. They play music. And we have many of those people in our churches. And, and you know what Jesus was saying? Good job. Well done, guys. Way to go. You're fighting hard. You're enduring hard. You're persevering hard. You're, you're, you're working hard. Man, if there's, I, I know there's no perfect church in the world. But I would say the church of Ephesus is pretty darn close. And I'm a pastor. Let's be honest here. There's no one else. It's just me and you on, on a camera. I would like that church. Give me a church of people who work hard. Give me a church of people who persevere hard. Give me a church of people who are willing to fight for the right thing, the right doctrine. Sign me up. But here's, the, here's what Jesus said. In verse 4. The word that haunts me every time I read in scripture. It says, but. There's always a but, isn't it? It says, but you have done all the three commendations, three good things. In fact, we'll later on see the church. Some churches don't even have one good thing. They have three good things going on for them. Jesus said in verse four, but I have this against you. That you have abandoned the love you had at first. I have this one thing against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. And so what Jesus is saying is it is actually possible to work hard, persevere hard and to believe the right thing and fight for the right doctrine and yet not love Jesus. That you can actually lose your love for Jesus while doing all these great things for Jesus, that you can potentially work for Jesus, but not live with Jesus in our hearts. Whoa, that's pretty serious. Because quite honestly, well, let's be honest again, like I, I, I think for most of us in Chinese churches, most of us will wear that badge as faithful endurance. Like we don't say it, but we are pretty faithful. We endure while we work hard. We persevere hard for Jesus. But yet there is a possibility here that Jesus is accusing and warning the church not to lose their first love. In fact, the word is not to lose is the word abandon. Look at the verse. I have this against you that you have abandoned. You know what abandon is? Abandon is not that they forgot about the love of Jesus. Abandon is not that they somehow lose the love for Jesus. Abandon is a willful act, a, a choice to reject Jesus. They chose not to love Jesus. And yes, they've done all these great things. But they abandoned their love for Jesus. Their first love for Jesus. 
Let me put it in a different way. It would be as if a husband show up at home one day and talk to his wife and said, Wife, I no longer love you. I'll still come home. I still work. I'll still bring money in. I'll still be the father of my children. I'll still do the dishes. I'll still do whatever chores. I'll show up home, do my job as a father. I won't move out. But I just don't love you anymore. You see, working hard, doing things for Jesus does not necessarily lead us to loving Jesus. And I think about when Jesus answered the question and said, what is the greatest commandment? You know what Jesus said? He did not say, do everything for me with all my, your heart, love, and strength. And he said, love the Lord your God. And I wonder if it's the same reason why when, Peter, when Jesus restored Peter after the resurrection, you know what Jesus asked Peter? Are you willing to feed my sheep? No. He said, do you love me? Then he asked it again, do you love me? Then he asked it again, do you love me? And every time when Peter answered, yes, Lord, you know I do. Then Jesus said, feed my sheep. See, Jesus is rebuking. And I think for many of us, uh, I'm worried that, that we have fallen into the danger of doing things for Jesus, but not falling in love with Jesus. And let me be frank, I think not, not just, uh, particularly for those of who have been, been Christian for a long time, myself included, it is also easy to just drift in our love for Jesus. I mean, we've been further along, we've kind of done the thing, you grew up at church, you know the stories, you've heard of the Sunday school, you've taught the Sunday school, you've been in children's ministry, now you're leading children's ministry, you work with babies, Young kids, college students, high school students, a young, young adult. Now you're working with me. We've walked through all of that. I've done all these things and served faithfully. But yet Jesus is saying, well done, but watch out. In doing these things, are you still loving me? Have you abandoned your love for me? Here's the truth I want you to take away is this. That when our faith grows old, our hearts can grow cold. Let me say that again. When our faith grows old, our hearts can grow cold. See, time is not a deciding factor whether we're growing in faith. We can just get older in our faith, but not mature in our faith. And when our faith is growing older, but not more mature, what happens to our hearts is that our hearts will start growing cold toward God, toward Jesus. And, and I think we all know that. Isn't it true for all relationships? It's true of married couples. It's true of dating couples. It's true of friendship. It's true of our parents versus versus parents and children in a family relationship. See, we don't need to exegete here about anything. We all know what first love is. Just talk to a couple who just got together, who are who are a new couple, a new married couple, a new dating couple. They could not get enough of each other. They trying to turn off the. They trying to turn off the uh, uh, their phone and go to sleep. It's two a.m. in the morning, but the one person said, "You turn off the phone. You hang up. You hang up." They go for another half an hour and no one hang up. I didn't speak from obviously. I did not speak from personal experience here. I'm just hearing from other people. That's what they did. But you know how it is. I remember when we first got married. You know, my wife and I. You know, we're living a honeymoon stage and nothing can go wrong. Oh, you wrong me? Oh, I forgive you. 
when they see other couples who are fighting, I'm thinking that will never happen to us. Man, those are sinners, man. I love my wife. But we all know life happens. If we're not careful, we can slowly let our relationship deteriorate. Let me ask you a question. Has your love for Jesus grown cold? Are you more busy working for Jesus rather than loving Jesus? Are you working more for Jesus or actually loving more Jesus? How do you know if you have fallen out of love with Jesus? I want to give us three symptoms, three telltale signs. They're not exhaustive, but but they're ways that you can measure whether you have fallen in love. One of this is this, that you can you have complacency. You know you're falling out of love with Jesus. You no longer love Jesus because you're complacent about your relationship. That's like any other relationship. You start thinking that I know everything about this person. I start thinking that I can do everything. I've done everything for this person. There's nothing new that I need to know. I'm satisfied where we're at. Maybe you're right here. You're really high and really close. But then I'm done here. That, that's the, the roof. And when you start feeling that, perhaps you start losing your love. I love how one author put it this way. He said this. She said this. She said that in relationship, particularly in our Christian walk, there are only two gears. Either you drive or you reverse. There are no neutral. And I'm afraid for many of us, including we see here in the church of Ephesus and even for our own lives, that sometimes we think we can park in neutral. But the reality is either you're growing closer in love with Jesus or you are backing up, drifting away from love for, toward Jesus. There is no neutral ground. So if you're complacent, you know you're not loving Jesus. Here's second, second one. Your relationships start getting casual with Jesus. Again, you think back those newlywed and new dating couple. They'll do amazing things. Like they'll do craft every single uh, one-month anniversary, two-month anniversary, three-month anniversary. They make their own card. They say they serenade. They do all sorts of stuff to make special moments, create these special moments in their life. And you know you have grown cold. Your love have grown cold toward Jesus when your relationship is casual toward Jesus. You don't talk anymore. There's no intention. There's no pursuit. There's no time. If it happened, it happened. If it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. I can care less. It doesn't happen as long as we're together. When your relationship is casual. That's when you know that you're growing out of love towards you. Here's the third one. Not only complacency, casual. Here's the third one, compromise. When you stop loving Jesus, you start making compromises. You start loving other things or other people more than Jesus. And the moment when things and people supersede your love for Jesus, you know what that's called? That's called idolatry. Tim Keller famously said that our hearts are idol factory. So the moment we don't love Jesus, we're filling our hearts with something else that we can love. We're created to be loving, worshipful beings. So we, we look for things to love. We look for people to love. If we don't love Jesus, we start finding, maybe for some of you, it will maybe an episode, a TV show on Netflix. Maybe for some of you, it's food. For some of you, doing nothing. For some of you, uh, doing exercise. For some of you, it's a team that you root for. 
For some of you, maybe your spouse, your children, whatever it is, when we lose our love for when our love grows cold toward Jesus, our love will start heating up for other things and other people, and that's called idolatry. This is why Jesus warned the church in Ephesus and said, have you grown cold toward me? Has your love grown cold toward me? Have you abandoned your first love? And let me ask you again. Have you lost your love toward Jesus? Have you been so busy doing for Jesus that you forget to be with Jesus? To be in love with Jesus? I'll be first to tell you, this is a problem for me and for all of us. If it hasn't happened to you, it will happen. I will guarantee you somewhere where along our journey, spiritual journey with Jesus, there will be a time that we have lost our love, would have grown cold for whatever reason. But I think precisely this is why Jesus is rebuking them. And rebuking me and rebuking you. And I'm preparing this message all week. I'm just being clubbed over by by the Spirit of God. Have you been growing your love cold toward me? Do you do what you do because you're a pastor? That's your job? Or do you do it because you love me? That ought to be a question that we ask ourselves all the time. And there's hope for us. Because Jesus is not rebuking the church of Ephesus. Or you and me to bring despair. He is rebuking us to restore us. See, Jesus is not pointing out the wrong thing and say and to condemn them, though it is wrong, though it is not right. Jesus is rebuking them to bring restoration, not condemnation. Because just like a good boss, a good boss doesn't do a performance review just so to put down the people that they are leading. They actually want to help them to do a better job. And I believe that's what Jesus is doing here with the church of Ephesus. And if you are falling out of love with you, I believe that's what Jesus brings hope to you. So how do we go, how do we bring bring love back to Jesus? How can we continue to fall back in love with Jesus? Here's what he says in verse five. He says this, you need here's what the verse five says. Remember therefore where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. There are three ways, three simple ways. One way for the first thing we need to do to fall back in love with Jesus is we must remember. He said, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. I was, uh, I was uh, backing up some pictures uh, on my iPhone. It was, it was telling me that my storage is maxing out. Apple is trying to make money off of me and try get me to uh, buy more storage per month. But I refuse because I'm a good Chinese. And so I'm trying to clear out some pictures, sync up some pictures on my, on my laptop and, and as a result of that, I started scrolling through these pictures. And I just remember my sons, and they're so young, and they're so cute, and just bring back all these memories of, of them. Oh, man, they have their first haircut. Oh, they were running around in our backyard, our house. And, and all these memories just start flooding into my head. And I, I think that's what Jesus had in mind here. Man, periodically, we need to open up that scrapbook of the gospel and just go back and start reading and remembering what Jesus had done for it. That is why we make a big deal out of Good Friday. But not just once a year. We got to make a big deal out of this every single day. Because we are forgetful people. We forget. Just like the church of Ephesus. They forget where they've come from. Where they've fallen in sin. And how Christ has raised them from the dead. How Christ has given them new life. 
Let me just read from Ephesians, the very letter that Paul wrote to the church of Ephesus. Those are familiar words for many of us. But I wonder, how, when's the last time we opened up that scrapbook to remember the grace that our Lord Jesus had poured in our lives? Here's what he says. And you were dead in your trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I can go on and on and on, but Jesus tells us we must remember where we were. Dead in our trespasses. And I encourage you, if you've fallen out of love with Jesus, start opening up that scrap of where you were when Christ saved you, what Christ had done in your life to rekindle that love. So remember, second one is this, we must, re, we must re, repent. Going back to Revelation chapter 2, we must repent. It says, remember therefore from where you have fallen, now Repent. Repent means we need to turn around. The phrase we use often in describing repentance is making a U-turn. You're not just saying sorry, though that's the first step. We must acknowledge that we have fallen out of love with God, with Jesus Christ. We must admit that, but not just saying that's just the first step. And saying, sorry, Jesus, I've fallen out of love with you because I've loved other things and other people. But not only going that, but we're turning around, making a U-turn and say, Jesus, I want to start committing back to you. And do not do that by assumption. You see, the very act of repentance is a gift from God. First John 1 John 1.9 tells us that God is faithful and just. And when we confess our sins, he will forgive us and cleanse us from our unrighteousness. Because God knew that though we are saved by grace through faith, we have eternal life, we will continue to stumble. We, there will be times that we are falling out of love with Jesus. And he has given us this gift of repentance. Promising that he will forgive us. Promising that he will cleanse us. So we must remember. We must repent. And now finally we must return. Because verse 5 tells us. Remember therefore. From where you have fallen. Repent. And here's the last one. And do the works you did at first. Returning to the work you did at first. Returning, We need to return to what we've done in that place when we first fall in love with Jesus, when we first love Jesus. Here's what I mean. To get back to your first love, you must do the first things. To get back in love, to get that first love back, you must do the first thing. What are those first things that, that John was referring to, Jesus referring to here? I believe it's the first thing that we have in any relationship is time, commitment, is being there with one another. I want to give us a challenge. If you have fallen out of love with Jesus or you're, you're struggling, you're walking, you're loving Jesus, I want to give us a challenge to return back to the first things. One of the first things we must do, that the, first thing, the first challenge that I want to give you is just to, to, to participate in this challenge called First 15 Challenge. 
if you want your first love, do the first thing. The first thing is we must give our first to God. God doesn't want a leftover. God wants our first. And I know most time we're talking about money, but I'm talking about your time. Here's the first 15 challenge I want to present to you. I want to encourage you, challenge you to spend the first 15 minutes of your day to God. The first 15 minutes before you whip out your phone, before you do anything else, open up your Bible app, spend time speaking to God, talking to God, asking Him to be with you that day, glorify Himself in you, in your life this day. Spend the first 15 minutes, first 15 minutes of your life, and I guarantee you when you start spending first 15, giving your first thing to God, God will start giving you your first love back to Him. Because all of a sudden you start prioritizing the importance of Jesus. And that's how every relationship works. It's about prioritizing, making space and making room, making time for the one whom you love. But here's my encouragement to you as you participate in that. That if you are to participate in the first 15 challenge, do not wait till you actually feel like doing it. Then do it. Because that's the mistake we often think of when we think of love is emotion. Love is something that we do. Uh, love is something that we feel. But love is more than just a feeling or more than just an emotion. Love actually is a commitment to someone that results into emotions and feelings. So what I want to encourage you to do is this. Don't wait till you feel like Opening up. Don't wait till you feel like talking. Start committing to God and doing these things. And watch how God changes your heart. And how God changes your, 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 your eyes and your heart. Start melting the, the ice around your heart. And start melting it. And so that you will start loving him back. That's why in Ezekiel, Jesus promised uh, the, prophecy, uh, the prophecy of changing our hearts of stone to be a heart of flesh. Love is ought to be more than our, our feeling. We, and you must do the first things so that our works of love will pave the way for our feeling of love. So we should do that every single week this week, every single day this week. Give your first 15 to God. That's a way for us to learn to love God, to love Jesus. The rest of this passage, the rest of the letter reads, with one warning and one, one consequence, one warning and one promise. Here's the warning that Jesus gave to the church of Ephesus. He says this, verse 7, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. I'm um, oh, sorry, in verse 5. Remember, uh, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not... I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Loving Jesus is that big of a deal. Jesus said, if you don't repent, if you don't return, if you don't go back to loving me, he said, I will remove that lampstand, meaning that he will remove that church. Their church will be lights out. Did you realize that the church is not eternally guaranteed? There's no eternal security of the church, meaning that the local body of Christ does not guarantee to exist forever. Though we as believers have eternal security in Christ, the church does not. 
Look at the picture that I'm showing here. There are no church of Ephesus as we remembered from the Bible in Ephesus today. All we get are ruins that are good for pictures when we go on tour and sightsee. What Jesus is saying is that I don't need you to be a witness for me. What Jesus wants more than just you doing good works for me to be a witness for me in this world. Jesus ultimately wants you, wants me. He wants a loving relationship between us and him. That there will be fellowship. A relationship with him. And God said, if you are so focused on doing for me, I will remove you the privilege, the honor to be a light into this world for me. But he also bring a promise, a blessing for us. That if we hear him, if we listen to him, if we repent and return to him. He says this in verse 7. He who has ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers. Meaning to the ones, to those of us who are standing by the, the, the victory that Jesus has accomplished for us. I will grant to eat of the tree of life. Which is in the paradise of God. Here we are in the last book of the Bible. Jesus brings it all in full circle back to the beginning of the Bible. Where we find the tree of life in the book of Genesis. Where how we were meant to live our lives. Where we're meant to find life. Where we're meant to live the way that God has first created us. And what Jesus promised us is this. If you love me, you get to experience what you're made to do. What you're made to enjoy me. You're made to experience. You're made to love me. And you're made to receive love from me. And it is the tree of life that you get to eat the fruit that satisfies you. You see, that's where we're saved from. We're saved from sin. We're saved uh, for its good work. But we're also saved to be with eternal union with God. And Jesus said, it matters more than what you just do for me. What ultimately matters most is whether you love me. So what I want to do right now is I want to give us a moment to respond to God. Just go ahead and close your eyes and bow your head. Just respond to the word of God. And I don't don't assume that I know what everyone's spiritual life is like. Perhaps you you are madly in love with Jesus and that's great. Praise Jesus for that. But for those of us, maybe we'd be so busy living for Jesus that we have not been loving Jesus, haven't been in love with Jesus. Would you take some time to return to him right now? I'm going to have the worship team to play. But I want to give you a minute. To pray to God. Would you return to him? Would you repent to him and say, God, Jesus Christ, I'm so sorry that I have loved you. I'm so sorry that I have not loved you, that I said I would do things for you, but I just haven't loved you. Would you take some time to start?
praying and ask, committing your life to him. He said, Jesus, I want you back. I know I don't feel it. I don't want to. But I know I need to. I know I, I, you're calling me back to yourself. Would you pray for yourself? Would you pray and commit your life to Jesus once again? That your life will be more about just doing, working. But those will just be a result or an overflow of your love for Jesus. So would you take a moment to pray as our worship team play music in the background. Be honest with God. Because this letter to the church of Ephesus wasn't one to drive his people away. It was one of hope. That there is a serious warning, but yet Jesus said, when you return, I'm, I'm open, my arms are wide open to receive you. Sacrifice it all so that we may have life. Heavenly Father, we come before you, rend our hearts, God, pierce our hearts. Examine our hearts. Show us where ways that we're falling short in loving you. God, remove any scales in our hearts, any any callous, any ice in our hearts. Melt it all away so that our hearts will be vibrant toward you once again. Restore that heart of stone. Make it the heart of flesh. Lord, we want to be the lampstand for you in this world, but Lord, we don't want to just do it for the sake of doing it, but we want to do it because we love you, Jesus. God, you said that in 1 Corinthians 15, that we can do all amazing. We can give uh, our lives, to all, all that we own to the poor. We can, we can do miracles, and yet without love, we're nothing. We're noisy, gone, we're annoying people. So God, we we say sorry to you. You care more than our sacrifice and our offering. God, you said you want our contrite spirit, a humble heart. So would you renew in us a new spirit, renew in us a new heart for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.